Oh, you know the song. You know it. Well, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Young. I got a chance to see David Crosby perform this in Kent, Ohio. How about that? I think 50 years after the fact. That was pretty cool. Hi, everybody. It's the Check Your Brain podcast. Tony Mazur here with you. And my guest today is David Giffels. And why am I playing Ohio by CSNY? It's because he has a book out. It's called Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America. And uh, it's basically talking about how Ohio is really a nice representation of America from kind of the higher tech areas of Columbus and Cleveland and Cincinnati to the more rural areas, kind of understanding the the rise in <clears throat> which what we talk about is the rise in populism that pops up for from people like certain people like the former mayor of Akron, uh, Don Plasquelic, Jim Traffigant in the Youngstown area, and why Youngstown seems to embrace people like Jim Traffigant and Donald Trump, a very lunch-pale, blue-collar Democrat area. I mean, these are teamsters, and for whatever reason, which we kind of talk about a little bit, and it's available in the book, is why a town like Youngstown and the surrounding area would go in favor of Donald Trump. So we talked a little bit about that. He put this book out right around the election time in 2020, and actually it seems more relevant now that we're not talking about things that may not have uh, been relevant a couple of months from now. So it was kind of nice to get a chance to talk to David. And uh, we also talked a little bit about Beavis and Butthead. He used to write for Beavis and Butthead back in the day, um, contributed to it, and talked to him about his relationship and getting to know Mike Judge over the years. So really cool conversation with David Giffels on his book, Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America. By the way, if you're listening to this for free, that means I did this interview a while ago. Uh, I kind of had a backlog of interviews and a backlog of podcasts. So if you are interested in hearing my interviews, basically as soon as I post them, go check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R. Subscribe for as little as $5 a month. So this David Giffels interview, you might be hearing this months after I recorded it. But if you are on Patreon and you subscribe, you got it as soon as I got done recording this, mixing it down, making it sound all nice and pretty and produced, and then I put it on Patreon immediately. So get an opportunity to hear cool interviews like this with David Giffel. So make sure you sign up for my Patreon if you want. If not, just give me a five-star rating on wherever you're listening to this on your favorite podcast platform. So without further ado, my interview with David Giffels. Good to have you talking about this, especially after the, after the fact. I wanted to book you like months ago, and I'm like, well, but is it, you know, might actually even be more relevant probably the book after after the election right yeah well who knew how much drama we were gonna have in that in that spell what do you mean who knew i think everybody knew there was gonna be some drama i I guess i guess yes i knew there would be drama but that's the the nature and 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 magnitude absolutely more than we could have guessed do do i have you for you know any time limit you got to be out uh, no, how long do you think we, we need? I'd probably do like half hour, 45 minutes, something like that. Normal uh, that works. Normal yeah. podcast uh, time. Sure, that uh, works for me. So, 
I'm joined here by uh, David Giffels, Tony Mazur here. Uh, his book, I want to say new, it's out a couple of months, but uh, we we're just talking. It seems pretty, even probably even more relevant to this day right now, and it's called Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America. And talking about Barnstorming Ohio and the day we're recording this, today is Ohio's birthday. So it <clears throat> kind of all fits in right there, but uh, Barnstorming Ohio, you you, you, you talk about it, it's kind of like almost a labor of love with this project of the love of this, the state. And uh, kind of go through that process, because we were going for, it was the 2020 election and Ohio being that bellwether state. What, I guess, kind of caused the, the, the beginning of the book and why, like, was there not enough literature that was out there about how how much Ohio is kind of like a major factor when it comes to our election, but not just our election. It's, it's everything. You realize we kind of are that crossroads. Ohio was always that place where it was like, okay, well, for example, Cleveland was halfway between New York and Chicago. And you would stop there, especially back in the seventies with concerts and, you know, sporting events and everything. But what was it that uh, caused you to really get into this book? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting that we're talking today because the book actually opens on Ohio Statehood Day, this very date in 2019. And, and it covers the span of exactly one year. The book covers from March of 2019 to March of 2020. And the book was really, it was really born um, after the, the 2016, I, I'm sorry, the 2018 midterm elections. And I was I was talking with my agent and ironically, I, we were talking about what, I, what my next project was gonna be. And I said, well, you know, I, I've written pretty much kind of exclusively about Ohio and the industrial Midwest in one way or another, pretty much on every big writing project, including my journalism career. And I, I'm like, I want to do something different. And I had this other project in mind. And he's like, and, you know, he's in New York, born and bred New Yorker. And so he looks at Ohio through a different lens. And he said, it just seems, you know, especially in the wake of the 2018 midterms, he said, it just seems like Ohio's always at the center of this conversation. And we know that 2020 is going to be a historic election um, in its own way. And he said, why don't you take that Ohio hat and put it back on your head and, and really dig down into it? So, so the person who said he didn't want to do another Ohio book now has a book with Ohio as part of the title, <laughs> Storming Ohio. So I couldn't get away from it. But but really, as soon as we started that conversation, it took me back to when I was a columnist at the Akron Beacon Journal. And in the run-up to the 2004 election, I spent a couple months just traveling the state, just talking to people and not the way a pollster does, or the way a politician does, or the way a political scientist does. I wanted to talk to people kind of on their own terms as fully formed, fully realized human beings and not as political types. And what I found at the end of that series that I wrote was that I understood a lot more about America and Americans than I did about an election. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do with this book. So I set off on the road for, um, for that year, traveled over 4,000 miles. I talked to more than hundred people and really with the goal, with the spirit of trying to understand a set of Americans who I do think uniquely represent the nation, um, but on their own terms as Americans and not as 
members of a political party or members of an ideology or, you know, sort of poll numbers that I was trying to put a human face on. And as you mentioned in the book, Ohio really does have a little bit of everything that you see across the country. So from the craft beer industry to soybean farmers and corn and everything, all the way to the industrial types where you have Cleveland is kind of <clears throat> shed in, in a little ways, but kind of shed their blue collar mindset of, uh, you know, going to the flats in the 70s and the 80s and, you know, 50 cent beer beers at, uh, you know, on the East Bank to now it's like, no, we're going for craft beer and we're trying to attract a more sophisticated audience. I'm like, you're Cleveland, for God's sake. You're, you, were the, you, you were the 10 cent beer town just, you know, 45 years ago. So, uh, but you kind of see a little bit of everything. Though one thing I've noticed and I've tried, you know, before the pandemic, I tried to do a lot more travel is I started seeing no matter where I went in the country, I'm seeing very similar themes and the feeling of culture was evaporating where culture isn't just wearing a a plaid shirt and having a beard anymore. That's not just about culture. So what I saw when I would go to Tremont or I would go to Highland Square here in Akron is that if I'm in Durham, North Carolina, I'm like, oh, it's the same people here. They have beards and they have flannel shirts and they talk about how much they love IPAs. And then I go to Oceanside, California, and I'm like, oh, it's the same people here. It they're they're the ones with the the beards and the flannel and everything. You're like. So is this a so what happened to these pockets that there was that kind of culture, but they're still around. It's just maybe not in the smaller towns. So you, you you got a chance to not just go to Dayton, go to Cleveland, go to Akron, go to Youngstown, but you went through different areas to see still see where there are semblances of that culture. Yeah, it, it, early in the book when I set it up, uh, I referred to you know the the reason Ohio kind of represents the nation is partly because, as you said at the beginning, we are this sort of unique crossroads. And I refer to Ohio as as the end of the East um, and the beginning of the Midwest. It's the end of the North and the beginning of the South. And, um, and, and, and so there is this cultural cross-section here that represents and manifests in a whole lot of different ways. But then there's also a quantifiable um, fact that we do represent a unique cross-section. And this is something that political scientists have defined as the five Ohios. And it, that that if you take five Ohio's five distinct regions and you analyze them, they each have their own sort of um, self-contained culture, voting patterns, histories, and even media centers, and they operate differently. So Northeast Ohio is this post-industrial um, sort of end of the Northeast part of the country. Um, Northwest Ohio is kind of the beginning of the true American Midwest, the more uh, agricultural Midwest. Southwest Ohio is the beginning of the South. I refer to, to Cincinnati as, as the biggest city in Kentucky. And it's, you know, and, and it's, it was the end of the Underground Railroad going in the opposite direction. It was the beginning of the North. Um, and, and central Ohio, Columbus kind of represents more of the suburban growth. It's the only growing big city in the state. And it, and it's more, I call it the Phoenix of Ohio. You know, it's this more, um, growing and more affluent city that has a much different nature than the old industrial cities. And then finally, Southeast Ohio, which is Appalachia. And so each of those places tells us something about America, um, that, 
I felt going into this book project that more than maybe at any other time in my writing life, that it was really important to hear because I felt like we, I feel like I felt this then and I still feel this, but that we're losing our center, that the level of division and the level of sort of knee jerk reaction to a single element of one person's either voting pattern or lifestyle or whatever, doesn't give them a chance to sort of be the real people that we are. And so we're hearing extremes right now, especially, you know, in the past couple of months. And we're not hearing much of the sort of balanced middle of this, I, this silent majority of people who are more moderate and central. And, you know, nobody seems interested in hearing that or else, you know, it's just being drowned out by the, by the louder voices at the, at the fringes. It seems kind of, and one thing that's kind of bothered me over the years is the, and it's not for like a political reason, but I really dislike the coastal elitism. And that's kind of been on display that you've you've seen played out in the public. And again, you know, it's not just it's not just Democrat. It's there's also Republican elitists, and there's and and what bothered me is it always seemed like I, I always play this scenario in my head, is that you have a flight from JFK and you're going out to LAX, and you're in first class, you're going for a TV show, or you're doing an interview, or you're going on Bill Maher's show, or whatever the case, and you hop aboard a flight. And you're maybe you're in first class. You order a drink before everyone's still sitting down, and uh, you take off, and you can unbuckle your seatbelt, and you kind of look out the window, and all you see are these green and brown squares. And the in my mind, and I could be wrong, but it just seems like it's playing out in the public is that a lot of the uh, the coast uh, coastal elitists kind of look out the window and go, "Man, I can't believe people actually live there," and then they pull the window down, they maybe go to sleep, and then they wake up and they're in Los Angeles. And the thing is that there are people that live there. And, there are, and they're, not just, they're not just hicks. They're not all racist. They're not all Bible thumpers. There's a lot of people who are progressive or have different ideas and ideals. And it's it, it kind of Ohio is looked at upon as this, uh, it, it, by some, is this, well, it's just this state that we only care about during election time, and it's it's corn, it's backwards people. I'm like, have you been to Ohio? And it really seemed like not many people did. And the people like yourself or others who have been, who, who grew up here, like myself too, it's almost like our responsibility to tell people, no, Ohio is not what you think it is. Even though I couldn't stand, if you remember, what, what about 10 years ago when they had those stupid license plates that look like the Facebook Farmville game? I'm like, look, it's bad enough people in New York think we're a bunch of hicks anyways. How about you, how about you we not use those for a license plate? But what has been your thoughts? Has there been kind of like a, a cultural struggle when trying to promote the I guess the general concept of what Ohio is and what it could be. Yeah. Um, you know, this book is about Ohio, but it really feels to me like it's about most of the country because, um, you know, one thing that I've experienced every four years is that, and, and this has just kind of become like sort of my understanding of how we're viewed um, from from afar is that you know because Ohio has um, 16 electoral votes and because Ohio is the seventh most populous state in the country and and because it until fairly recently has been in play politically um, and has always has a longer track record of, of the president in presidential elections that were valuable 
only, only, you know, sort of part of one year out of every four years. Like Iowa. Three years were sort of just ignored or overlooked. That's sort of, I mean, that's sort of the definition of flyover country. And so that was, so my, so my idea in writing the book was not just to write about, about Ohio, but to sort of reflect how I think most of the country feels, or at least the middle of the country is that we're not understood. We're not listened to. We don't have our voice um, that, that is our own voice that, that gets to speak freely when we want to, but instead we're only tested when somebody wants something from us and no more is that true than during an election season. And so I went in sort of feeling this. And one of the most interesting things that happened really early on is Tim Ryan announced that he was going to run for the Democratic nomination. And so I went to his um, announcement speech in Youngstown when he um, when he had his kickoff of his campaign. And he the, the thing he hammered down and hammered home most in that speech and then again during the debates and other venues was just that. He said, we are the flyover states. We are the middle of the country and nobody is listening to us or speaking for us. Um, and so he really wanted to um, sort of give a face and a voice to that same notion that that so much of the country is not listened to. And, and by flyover, I think he also means the middle class, the common people, regular folks who are seem so elusive when you're trying to understand it from a New York TV studio, but you know, you walk through Ohio and it's full of regular folks, right? Yeah. Well, and in somebody like Tim Ryan that, you know, he didn't do well in the polls uh, nationally, but I thought it was a really, really bad mistake for the Democrats a couple of years ago when he was up for a possibility of being uh, one of the minority leaders. And instead, it went, you know, leaning towards Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi, again, is another one of those that she gets on her on a 757 in San Francisco and flies to D.C. And, and so all that flyover country is just kind of missed. And somebody like Tim Ryan, who's been out there in Trumbull and Mahoning County and trying to get jobs back into the Lordstown area and uh, different and, and the people who have been out of work and especially most affected and you got an opportunity to go there and, and talk to these people in Youngstown and Niles and Warren, that that was steel country. That, and, and a lot of those people have not had jobs for decades. And I'm talking decades of federal assistance because the jobs went away. And what are you going to do? So I, my, I guess my next question here, uh, kind of piggybacking off of that, is talking to those people that when their jobs were taken from them, and this is kind of it's kind of like that across the board. So you could talk about the auto industry in Detroit and the uh, the railroad and the coal miners in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, and the getting into the psyche of some of these people who have stayed. Because there's a lot of people who said, "Look, my job's gone away. My dad lost his job. I'm moving to greener pastures. I'm moving to Austin. I'm moving to Asheville, North Carolina. I'm moving to Nashville. I'm moving somewhere where it's warm and their jobs are plentiful. I'm going to, you got a lot of people going to Florida because it's more open during the pandemic. And who's left out of this are the people of Youngstown, the people of Akron, the people, like you said, in all these major cities that have seen population decreases outside of Columbus and a lot of Columbus's reasons because of the college. Um, like what is inside that psyche of people that say that, like, do they feel that they need to stick up for their town and that 
Jobs are going to come back at some point. It's going to take a little bit, but we need to be cheerleaders for this region. Or is this mindset that they just feel that they're stuck here for the rest of their lives? Yeah, you know, I I write in the book, there's, for a while, and I don't see it anymore, there was this bumper sticker that said stuck in Ohio. And it always really annoyed me because, first of all, if you have a bumper to put a sticker on, that means you have a car, which means you are literally not stuck in Ohio. You're free to leave. <laughs> Um, but, you know, something that I think, you know, this has been, I've been writing about this a long time, the story of Ohio in the past generation, past two generations, has been in great part the story of brain drain, the fact that we, you know, Akron has lost a third of its population in my lifetime. And, and that's been kind of the story that was told. But a few years back, I, I started to wonder, you know, what's the story of the two thirds that stayed? You know, why do people stay in Rust Belt cities and places like this? And, you know, I spent more time in, in the area around Lordstown than anywhere else during that year, because that, that plant closing happened right at the beginning of this story. And I kind of stayed with it throughout. And over and over again, the plight of the Lordstown worker of many of them was their job was eliminated in Northeast Ohio and they were being offered to relocate to a plant somewhere else, probably far away. They didn't want to leave because home is home. And, you know, I think that's a misunderstood thing. People think, you know, again, you know, in other places of the country, why would you want to stay in Mahoning County? when there are so many other places someone can live. And I think they underestimate the power of home. I mean, just the fact that, you know, for instance, you have aging parents here that you want to be close to, or just this is where you feel you belong. And so there was a real um, urge among a lot of the people I talked to to find a way to, you know, they had to make this terrible decision. Do they stay home or do they go try to keep their standard of living by relocating. And it was a real, um, I think it, it was a real underrepresented um, part of the trauma that, that that region suffered last year and is continuing to suffer. You know, the work factory I just heard this morning, which is part of what's replacing um, the lost jobs at that plant, just got passed over to, um, to produce vehicles for the postal service. Mm. And that's a big blow because that was one of the things they were banking on to try to make that that electric vehicle facility in Lordstown viable. Um, and, you know, so they continue to fight that struggle. Um, but but, you know, people, nobody was listening to them. You know, the, the, the biggest question in Ohio, I think, coming out of the 2020 election is that this this region around the Mahoney Valley which was traditionally blue collar union Democrats, a very reliable voting block that went for Trump in 2016. I heard this over and over from people there, people who voted twice for Barack Obama, then voted for Donald Trump in 2020. And every one of those people to a one that I talked to said that they would not vote for Donald Trump again in 2020. And then look what happened. That region went very strongly for Trump again. And I know I didn't understand it, but I was on a panel just a couple of days after the election with Sherrod Brown. And I asked him, I said, do you know what happened? And he's like, 
I'm as baffled as you are. He said, we need to figure out what's going on in the, in the Mahoning Valley and places like that, because it's, again, if, if we're not listening to them, we're missing something very important because there's something going on there that we don't understand completely. And you mentioned in the book, and it's, uh, it's one of those things where uh, you talk to a lot of, uh, of people who grew up in that region who were even Republican, who loved Jim Traffigan. And Jim Traffigan, for people who really aren't aware, was kind of like the Donald Trump of the Democrats in, in the Youngstown area. And is now, could this be a rise in the, the people like a populist message, that, uh, a more, I don't want, obviously I'm not saying white nationalist, but a nationalist message, a patriotic message of somebody. And it seemed like, because here in Akron, we had Don Plasquelic as the mayor for what seemed like 85 years. And Plasquelic was kind of like a Trump figure, even though he was a Democrat. But what it was is he was he was bombastic. He was somebody who would get it in your face. Uh, I, I'll, I'll I'll tell a quick Plasquelic story, and I'll, I'll go on. Is that somebody came? Uh, we we did a uh, <clears throat> benefit with the Akron Rubber Ducks a couple of years ago, and in downtown Akron, before all the construction that was happening, they had these spaces that were kind of on a diagonal, and that you would back into these spaces and and to pay to park. And somebody came up to Plasquelic and said, uh, hey, Don, I got a bone to pick with you. What's with all these goddamn parking spaces you got to back yourself into? It's, I don't know what the hell to do. And Plasquelic says, hey, listen, asshole, they, my, our studies show that it was much safer and this is, and so he gets in people's faces. And it, it pissed people off in some ways, but then people were really looking at it and saying, this guy's a fighter. And that's what they saw in Trafficking. And they, that's what a lot of people saw in Trump. There were a lot of people, even my, my father, a longtime Republican, who was a Ted Cruz supporter up until about five years ago, uh, said this Trump is a buffoon. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm a Ted Cruz guy. That eventually, as time went on, they said, this Trump is fighting for us. And whether that whether he really was fighting for people or not, people were leaning towards a populist message of somebody who's going to fight for them. And when you see in, in a town like Youngstown, maybe not so much a Toledo, but a town like Youngstown that, again, yet like you said, blue-collar, lunch-pail Democrats for a long time, union people, uh, Teamsters, they said, you know what? The Democrats aren't doing enough for us that they promised us, and they're talking about social justice and transgender this and that and abortion and everything. We're, how about we lean over towards Trump? And you kind of see that as a as a generational divide, especially with baby boomers. Yeah, um, there's a whole chapter in the book about Jim Traffigan, and he was so much fun to write about. But also, you know, there's there there's a, a, a darkness beneath that is that um, you know, yes, Traffigan was the ultimate outsider populist, and and he's referred to in other media as the proto-Trump. A lot of people compared Donald Trump's rise to Traffigan's rise, which was this outsider who seemed to be something new that didn't exist in Washington. Um, they both had unique hairstyles, mm -hmm. had this very blunt um, approach that was not polished, that didn't sound like a politician. They both sparred with the media, but also used the media like magicians. Um, 
And but but ultimately, and and trafficking, yes, like you said, he listened to the people that served, and they felt like he was he was somebody who understood a misunderstood people and gave voice to a voiceless people, which is what it felt like then and still feels like now to be Valley, to be this these people who are struggling for a basic quality of life and and not getting you know, the contract is not being fulfilled by um, by the way it's supposed to work for people who work so hard and give their life to a difficult job. And so Jim Traffigant was doing that in the 70s and 80s, um, but ultimately Traffigant, um, you know, turned out to be corrupt, was drummed out of Congress, went to prison, and yet he continued, you know, he continued to run for his for his seat, his congressional seat from jail and got a lot of votes. And it's kind of funny, but it's also very dangerous. Somebody who's been proven to be a criminal who continues to have that base has a power um, that can be dangerous. Um, and, you know, Donald Trump is now sort of entering a phase where something similar could happen, but regardless of, of his, whatever happens to him in the legal system, He's got a lot of power right now that that we're just about to see what he's going to do with it. And, you know, they're both demagogues and I, the literal definition, I don't think it's loaded terms, the literal de definition of a demagogue. And they both um, played that demagogical power, you know, to historic effect. Yeah. It, it Here, I, I guess I, I won't uh, publicly compare Don Pasquale to Donald Trump because I, I know next time I run into him, I'll get fearful. But, uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I think there is, there is though, I think in him, I think we saw an example of somebody who was a profoundly good leader who also did not play by the polished game all the time. He was great. He was a great mayor. I, I will always say that but he was also a pain in the ass a lot of the time. And, um, and maybe that's good. You know, I, I think you, you know, you, to be a powerful leader, you have to have some of that, but most, uh, most of the, you know, sort of historic figures knew how to put a polish or a folksiness to it that maybe some others don't. I want to, I want to talk to you more about the politics in Ohio is Ohio was always kind of that purple state for a while, and it really seemed like there was a nice check and a balance between, okay, there's a Democrat governor, but there's a, you know, the House is this, and, you know, and then it flip-flops a little bit. But I, it, now, in my opinion, but it's kind of what I see other than Tim Ryan, other than Sherrod Brown, and other than, you know, a, a select number of uh, blue mayors in the in the state, it seems like it's getting pretty crimson, pretty dark red in Ohio. And you kind of saw those checks and balances back in the day where you did have Dick Celeste as the governor for a while after the years of Rhodes. So Dick Celeste was the governor of Ohio in the in the 80s. But Akron had uh, Robbie, was it Robbie Ray? <clears throat> or Roy Ray. Roy Ray. Rob, Robbie Ray is a relief pitcher in baseball somewhere. Uh, Roy Ray in the early 80s, Republican mayor of Akron. You had George Voinovich, Republican mayor in Cleveland. So you had some of these now very deep blue 
larger cities in Ohio, but the governorship and especially once you get out of the urban areas is going deep red. And you're seeing the Jim Jordans, you're seeing the disgraced Larry Householder, you're seeing the these more Republican uh, uh, districts that are going here. Like, is this is this a trend that's going to continue? Will there there be some kind of power struggle? Are we going to, based on what your research and talking to people, like, will there be another uh, at any point soon a Republican mayor of Akron? Because I mean, for example, because so we're both broadcasting in Akron here, is that in the last election? They had a Republican challenger, actually last couple of elections, Republican challenger, but everybody knew that it was going to come down to a Democrat versus a Democrat. And it was just understood that this is a blue collar area and it's a very blue area where they traditionally go for, okay, where's the D on the ballot? Is there going to be some kind of check and balance going forward or is this what it is until the demographics change? Yeah, I well, first of all, I would not want to overrepresent my political acumen, my political expertise. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not really a political journalist. I you know, but I but I've observed the state um, culturally, I guess, for you know, for decades. And one you know, but one thing I did come to understand in researching is first of all how much gerrymandering has. Um, affected the, the perception of Ohio. We are one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. And so if you look at the map, there are these vast areas of red that don't contain very any po- population centers, but, but it's been contorted so that they cram all these democratic votes just into the big cities or just into the districts where they can just sort of um, uh, mar- isolate, marginalize them. And because there is sort of unilateral Republican leadership in Ohio right now, and we're about to redraw the district lines, um, I think there's every reason to believe that that's only going to be exacerbated by that process. Um, I, I think it's really interesting that Elizabeth Walters from Akron, from some county, is is becoming the state democratic chair she's young she's energetic she's really smart i interviewed her for the book um and you know i think i think everyone in the country watched what happened in georgia and the way that grassroots um that that grassroots organizing and um just sort of old school get down into the trenches and try to make change um, it took years, and and Georgia, this very very red southern state, is starting to turn blue. So, um, you know, I, it's it's going to take a charge led by Elizabeth Walters, I think, to try to mimic that effort in Ohio. If there's a desire to to get it back in balance, we also have some, um, I think, figures who are sort of growing in stature. Um, Democrats, um, Ann Whaley, the um, mayor of Detroit, is I think her Dayton. national file is growing. Pardon me. No, you said you said Detroit, Dayton. Oh, Detroit, yeah, Dayton. Other Rust Belt <laughs> city. <laughs> little Detroit, yeah. Um, sorry, yeah, uh, yeah. So, Dayton, she's gaining. Amelia Sykes is kind of a rising figure. Um, you know, how much will they be able to um, start to? out the, the the strongly Republican 
leadership that we have in the state. Um, I don't know, like I don't have that that crystal ball, but uh, again, I look to Georgia and what happened to Georgia and think if there is gonna be an effort by Democrats for change, it's gonna look like that. Yeah, and what you see, especially those maps uh, about the last two elections, is that when if you just looked at the map based on counties and the color, the entire country's red. I mean, it's just deep red unless you start looking into it. And then, but Joe Biden apparently won the. Uh, I, I, I could be wrong, but I think I read it's like the a record low amount of counties. But those counties have major populations. So you look at something like Pennsylvania, which was all red except for a little bit of state college. Uh, I'm not sure about Erie, Allegheny County, and then you have around Philadelphia, and it's all red, yet it went to Joe Biden. It went blue. So you kind of see that uh, that difference when it, came, when it comes to the population. Uh, and, you kinda, and you see that in Ohio, too, because Ohio— it actually went Trump, even though Biden won the election. One of, I think, what is it? Uh, out of the last 31 elections, it's was it 29 of them picked the winner, and this was one of them. So, in uh, what you saw in Ohio was it blue in Cuyahoga County. Uh, I think Lake County went red for Trump, but and then you had red in the Youngstown area, but Summit County, Stark County blue, Franklin County blue, uh, uh, Hamilton County blue, Lucas and Wood County blue, and it's red the rest of the state. So that's a pattern I guess you see based on gerrymandering and based on population growth and lack thereof across the country. So, um, you know, yeah, it's going to take some of that leadership. Now, it, it, you know, again, you're not a political scientist, but based on what you saw from the the rise in the populist Trump message and what you saw from trafficking, is the do you think in Ohio the uh, the Republicans are leaning more towards a Trump populist nationalist message, or are they going to go more of a traditionalist Republican kind of like what you see with Governor Mike DeWine? Um, no, I think you know um, the presence of Jim Jordan and and trends that we that I saw suggest that it is going to be more of that Trump Republican influence in Ohio. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this, I, I, I studied and analyzed politics more in the past three years because of this book project than I ever did before in my life. And I've never been more convinced that I wouldn't want anything to do with politics <laughs> as a career or a lifestyle. Um, and, and, and so some of it just is frustrating again, because the whole premise and spirit of this book and my whole spirit as a human being is that I, 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 I don't want to be overwhelmed by those extremes. And so there's this rise of extremism in that populist movement and a rise in extremism on the far left that, um, that ignores who most of us are. So my sense is, yes, that, that the Republican influence is going to be more in that sort of Trump radical right vein in Ohio. But I would like to think again that there's this silent majority that we're just not, that somebody hasn't found a way to tap into so that maybe there is a, a moderate Republican vein to be tapped into that can, that can balance out what's going on with that, with that other side. And the same on the left, that, that there's this, you know, my hope is that Ohio maintains its sort of common sense um, nature and that, that that there is a moderate 
um, Democrat, a moderate liberal force that is strong enough to, to sort of keep that, um, you know, just keep that sort of lightning rod kind of centered and not, I, I, I've lost track of that metaphor, but you know, like, <laughs> you know, sort of keep us, keep us on, on, on the, yeah, well, it's funny when you mentioned about the uh, about the extremes, and you go back like twenty years ago, even even longer than that. Dennis Kucinich was known as like a oh this this left wing radical nut job, this and that, and now it's like, yeah, mainstream uh, Dennis Kucinich, and it's like whoa, like this is the guy who was like so far left, like he was he was off the off the reservation. Now he's like a sensible Democrat based on how polarized things have been but he's again he's apparently going to uh is he is he running for uh running for mayor again is that what i saw because he was running for governor last time yeah i actually hadn't heard that but um, yeah that would be interesting just just for the throwback paraphernalia of of kucinich well that's what we Um, love it that's what we love we love nostalgia you know we want all of our i'm old enough to remember dennis kucinich as the mayor of cleveland so i would uh yeah, I would have at least a nostalgic interest in that campaign. Um, last thing I want to ask you, at least as far as Ohio and the book goes, is what are like a city or a couple of cities or towns that you like you could I guess you could see yourself that uh, besides Akron that you can see yourself living in? Because I'll, I'll say a couple of cities that I didn't even think two things about until I visited there was I went to Wapakoneta a couple of years ago. Uh, the home of Neil Armstrong, right off 75, and they have the Neil Armstrong Museum, and you know it was it, it was it was cool checking that out, and we're like, well, let's go see Neil's house, and we went to a couple of bars and uh, went to a, a concert that was playing in like a small, you know, almost like the, the where the good old boys played in the Blues Brothers, and I'm like, this town is great. Like, I don't know if I would live there, but. This is a really cool town, and you go in through all these other towns that, whether it's like a college type of town like in Athens or, you know, some of those towns that maybe like are a bigger city, uh, comparatively speaking, but off the beaten path, like a Xenia that got hit by the bad tornado. Like, what are some of those towns where you, you were really taken aback and you didn't think two things about until you stepped foot in there and you're like, wow, I'm going to have to come back again, maybe take somebody to go out to dinner or have a couple of drinks? Yeah, well, first of all, Ohio has great big cities, legacy cities. I mean, Cincinnati is just a great downtown, and you know, it's it's kind of refound a, a new um, vibe in the past twenty years, um, in the same way that Cleveland has, and that Akron is in the midst of. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if I, I'm never going to give up my Akron uh, roots, but. Um, you know, any of the big cities in Ohio are just have their, uh, again, an underestimated, a misunderstood or, or mis- underrepresented allure. But also just one thing that was reinforced for me that year of traveling was was these great small towns that Ohio has. Just if you want to talk about quintessential Americana, um, not only do we have these small towns that just have that feel, but also, um, you know, that are incredibly affordable because most of them are in places that have been through distress, like most of the Rust Belt has. So just to, to name one of many, um, Mansfield kind of really sort of popped when I was working on this book. It's a place I've 
spend time in and actually I have family there. So, you know, but to go there as a writer and to really see, it, look at it more deeply and think about it, you know, it's this town that just represents this, this grind that I think we need to really value that it would be very easy for Mansfield to just slip completely into despair over the past generation of, of loss of industry and so forth. And yet they're in the middle of this town, there's this, there's this um, merry-go-round that, that was put in um, this carousel. And it's this charming middle American, um, just Norman Rockwell town where there's an effort to put in little shops and to make it unique and to make it feel like a real place. But you also see, or I saw, especially talking to people, what it takes to keep moving that forward. And it's always, you know, this is the Ohio thing. It's, it's two steps forward, one step back. It's one step forward, two steps back. And it, the grind is, is really like, that is our culture is, is the grind and not glamor and not ease and not a, you know, a way of life that, you know, is, it, it feels like anything other than, than work and, and struggle in a positive way. And that's really, I think, evident in the small towns that are kept up. And those places, they have such value and they have people, champions in them who are, you know, like heroic that, that are putting, not only putting their money, but their hard work and their belief and their faith in a, in a kind of Americana that, um, that they believe in. And I found that really hopeful when I was there. And that crossroads with Ohio, I mean, literally crossroads, because you think of our major highways, and I mean, 90 takes you from Seattle to Boston, 80 from like San Francisco area to New York, 70, 77 is basically the gateway from downtown Cleveland all the way towards the, into the Carolinas, 76 takes you to the East Coast, 70 is across the country as well, uh, 75 from the Canadian border to Miami, so it really, but also the downside with that is because it is the crossroads and towns like Dayton and Barberton and the Youngstown area just got walloped by this opioid epidemic, which we're still going through and throw in a pandemic and people losing their jobs and their livelihoods. It's just, it's been brutal. So, you know, it's, you know, but there, there is that glimmer of hope. And in, in this book, Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America by David Giffels, you give an opportunity to kind of kind of get a peek behind the curtain of somebody who's who's from here and who still has just an absolute affection for the state. So, yeah, uh <clears throat> David by the way before I let you go, I, I I have to ask you about Beavis and Butthead if you don't mind. <laughs> and, and Mike Judge cuz I saw that uh Paramount Plus is coming out with this network and they're coming out with new Beavis and Butthead. And you had an opportunity to write for them. So was that, I, I was trying to, I read your Grantland piece from about a decade ago before they revamped Beavis and Butthead again. So was that because you like wrote a, it was, it was, it was in response to all the, the, the problems that Mike Judge had to deal with, with, you know, somebody threw a bowling ball off an overpass and said, oh, they saw it on Beavis and Butthead. Uh, and uh, a kid lights his trailer on fire with the newborn in there. And they say, oh, it's because Beavis said, fire, fire. And and you wrote something. Basically, it's and it's been the same thing, especially with like a lot of the more 
conservatives and radical uh, uh, religious zealots about, oh, no, uh, we need to ban. I mean, they're doing it again with Grand Theft Auto. They're saying, oh, but Grand Theft Auto is promoting gun use, and that's why we need to ban it in Chicago. And it, it like because you wrote a, a piece on that and Mike Judge responded and you got an opportunity to write like how did that process and are you a are you are you a part of this part and uh, uh, being a contributor of Beavis and Butthead no no I am not a part of that anymore that was just one of those weird just um just once in a lifetime coincidences I was working at the County Gazette my first newspaper job and I wrote a couple of columns about the show and it was like a Friday afternoon. This is in the in the early '90s, um, and you know I had a few minutes to kill, and I, I I found an address for MTV Networks. It was like part of Viacom. It was just a blind address on a on a promotional mailing package. So I sent those two columns to Mike Judge, care of MTV Networks. It was like a message in a bottle, just just with a note that basically just said, you know just wanted to let you know not all of the media is against you this week when he was really coming under fire for um, for the influence that Beefus and Butthead was having on kids and miss, missing the satire in it. And he, and I got a note back a couple of weeks later, a handwritten note from Mike Judge that said, thanks for sending those. It was nice to have a little laugh. Um, I thought they were funny. Would you like to try writing for the show? I would pay you $300, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> And that was it. And and so, yeah, so I, I wrote, I, I didn't write that many episodes of the show, but I wrote for the rest of the run of the show until it went off the air, um, about an episode a season. And it was a blast, but be, I haven't been um, involved with that since since then. Well, that's what that's what's great about Mike Judge was that, I mean, he's a guy who worked in corporate America and played in bands and decided to basically give it all up to start drawing cartoons for for MTV and who would ever pick him up. And it just really hit. The one thing that was interesting about that, because they were like, oh, they're rebooting Beavis and Butthead. And I'm like, again, didn't they just do that? But when they when it happened 10 years ago, it didn't have the cachet that it, do, that it had in the 90s because it was more shocking. There was more of the, uh, you know, the punditry would have roundtable discussions of what's happening on Beavis and Butthead. It's not like that. We were a different society. And it's kind of like when you watch Beavis and Butthead now, it's the same way as uh, watching like a Kevin Smith movie. So you watch Clerks and you go, oh, yeah, okay. Or you're watching Mallrats. And you're like, yeah, that's definitely a 90s movie. So when I watch Beavis and Butthead, <clears throat> and I'm in my 30s, so yeah, I grew up with Beavis and Butthead. And it's like, yeah, but try showing that to a, a kid who's like 12 now are they going to have the same feeling that when i was growing up and would watch it so it's yeah. kind of interesting to that that appeal but that's the thing about mike is that he's so brilliant that he changes with the times and why something like office space and king of the hill became what they were where it wasn't just pigeonholed oh that's the beavis and butthead guy no it's no it's mike judge who also did beavis and butthead and who also did idiocracy and who also did extract and who also did this family and this and that and that and that it, it just that that rapport is just just so great and that was what was so cool when i was reading your piece about that by going you guys are basically the same age and on the same wavelength and kind of a, a similar hive mindset of, hey, this is what people kind of really like, and this is that that biting satire that you were seeing in the early 90s based on, like, Gen Xers and late-term baby boomers. Well, you know, I, I really do think Mike Judge is a genius, but the genius, his genius is 
that he understands how, satire, but he understands how it's going to be perceived by the people who need to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not clever for his own sake. So like, like he always said, Beavis and Butthead, he said, we're not writing Beavis and Butthead for 12 year old boys. We're writing Beavis and Butthead for us, 30 year olds who used to be 12 year old boys. And so he knew, and, and he was like, you know, like I had the chance to be in the studio with him where he was doing the, the voiceover for the music videos that he would do. And a lot of that was really just, just kind of like off the cuff. It was just improvised. And he would, anytime he heard himself being too clever, he would stop. And, you know, like the best writing advice I ever got came from him. He set back a script and he said, make it stupider. And it wasn't to dumb it down. It was not to oversmart it. And so his other, I think his other, all of his other ventures in satire have have a brilliance that comes from understanding how the audience that really needs to hear this will hear it. Office Space, I think, has kind of a timelessness, a weird timelessness to it, because Office Space is sort of like pre-digital workplace, but it still has that fury at the computer in it, because he really understood in a common sense kind of way what it felt like to be a drone in an office. Well, and he and he was somebody who did that before, and why I think a lot of humor is not, and, and kind of scripts that have been out there have kind of gone by the wayside, not responsive, because people didn't have that real-world experience of, hey, I actually worked in this field, and I'm sharing my experiences. That's kind of like what... It was kind of like the why Dilbert was so successful in those days, too, was that Scott Adams... Uh, was somebody who actually, you know, worked at Pac Bell and worked at different uh, places and uh, in in the quote unquote real world. And when you see a lot of the Hollywood scripts, it's like, okay, you went to Harvard, but did you actually work? Like, have you ever gotten your fingernails dirty? Yeah. No, you don't. You're just basing this on experience of things that you heard. That's why it seems successful. But so, what you actually? I said you wrote a Cornholio episode. I did. Which which yeah. one was it? It was called Buttnicks. Oh. <laughs> go to a poetry reading at a coffee house mm-hmm. beavis starts ordering cappuccino which he calls crappuccino <laughs> and he gets wired out of his mind and and starts performing spontaneous poetry and all of the all of the poetry beatniks think he's this this poetic genius and he's really just riffing on cornholio stuff and so yeah, that's uh yeah that's that's my one of my literary achievements there, Tony. Absolutely. Well, because it's funny because uh, Pluto TV has like a whole Beavis and Butthead channel. They don't have the music videos, but they have like the actual episodes. And so I'll look through the credits, and because I think it's based on the DVD set that came out that, about like 15 years ago. And I would look through the credits, and I would see David Giffel's there, but I'm like, but he, did he write this episode, or he just contributed in the season? Or like, what is it? So I was always curious which ones you were actually writing. But uh, no, it was uh, you know, it, it's great. I still lose myself and uh, <laughs> still watch them. My wife and I, because you know she's she's in her thirties as well, and we're just it's just nostalgia night. We're gonna go back in in time, so it's a, a lot of fun. But hey, but it, it's been great to talk to you. And uh, uh, again, the book "Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America." You also have other uh, other publications. Uh, I'm assuming that by the way, this is available on Amazon and everywhere. Where where can we find everything there there is to know and to read about David Giffels? Um, well, you can go to my website, which 
is davidgiffels.com. Um, and it also, yeah, the Barnstormings Ohio is available anywhere that books are sold. Um, links on the website to buy any of my books. So appreciate your um, allowing me to plug that. Absolutely. Yeah, well, uh, it, it was great to, uh, not obviously not in person to talk to you, but talk to you face-to-face here on Zoom. And uh, uh, I am going to go to lunch over next door to our studios over at Acme One, where I see a big postage stamp with your face and name on it. Yes, indeed. I'm, I am what, I guess there's, I, I'm famous. I guess that's my level of celebrity. You are, you are uh, a, yeah, you are a tr- Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's like, you know, you see like the the famous Akron people. And I remember going up there for lunch because they have like a second floor and I got a salad or something. I was trying to eat healthy that day, of course. And uh, I was up there. I'm like, and David Giffel's up there. Interesting. That's, uh, you know, we're going with famous, famous Akronites. And uh, sure enough, it's like you're, I think you're like next to Don Plasquelic up there. So if you ever want to go shopping over at Acme One over on West Market Street, you get to see uh, David Giffels and uh, all the famous Akron people. There you go. David, thanks again so much. I look forward to it. Uh, I'm looking forward to playing this and getting some good feedback. And, uh, again, best of luck. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to keep in touch down the road. Yeah, thanks, Tony. And I'll say, you know, I've been talking about this book since, since August when it came out. And this is one of the best conversations I've had. Um, I think especially because we get we got to talk about it after the outcome of the election wasn't sucking all the wind out of the room. So um, but anyway, I really appreciate the, the time and, and the conversation.